We come this morning to Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 36. Luke chapter 8, verse uh, 26, forgive me, and uh, we'll be reading through the end of the chapter. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen heard what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them. For they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. 1957, British philosopher Bertrand Russell published a silly book called Why I Am Not a Christian. It was largely a collection of previous essays that he had published, and I call it silly not because I want to be insulting, but simply because there's really no other word for it. His arguments are those you would expect from a college sophomore and many are responses not to biblical Christianity, but rather to the pale imitation of Christianity that Russell saw around him in his day in the established Church of England. Among other objections, Russell argues that Jesus was neither good nor wise, and he seeks to make his case by drawing the attention of his readers to this passage which we have just read. As Russell states, there is the instance of the gathering swine, where it certainly was not very kind to the pigs to put devils in them, 
and make them rush down the hill into the sea? You must remember that he was omnipotent, and he could have made the devil simply go away, but he chose to send them into the pigs. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. Now, there are all kinds of problems with Russell's understanding of this passage, and frankly, with his philosophical argumentation. For a world-renowned philosopher, when the subject turns to religion, Russell had a habit of throwing all intellectual rigor out the window. But this is not a lecture on the weaknesses of Russell's philosophical argumentation. The basic point for us this morning, as we will see, is that Russell is responding to Jesus in the same way the townspeople responded to Jesus. He's more concerned about the pigs than he is about the man who had been delivered from demons. Like the townspeople, Russell has not one word of concern for this poor, wretched man. The truth is that this miracle was a powerful demonstration of the deity of Christ and the total transformation that comes to anyone who receives his grace. Far from being embarrassed by what Jesus did, the incident draws us to trust in him for our salvation and to tell other people what he has done for us. Let's look together at how Luke accomplishes this. Luke tells us that after the stilling of the storm, which we were looking at last week, Jesus sailed with his disciples. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he, had came, come, when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who, who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in tombs. So immediately as Jesus steps off the boat onto the shore, he comes face to face with this man who was clearly in an extremely wretched condition. He is naked and has been for quite some time. He is alone living among tombs. And we will read in a moment that he is quite dangerous, that he exhibits superhuman strength to the point where Mark tells us that everyone was afraid of him. And all of this was the result of the fact that he was, as verse 26 puts it, possessed by demons. The man that Jesus met that day was in nearly the worst condition that you could imagine he was naked, lonely, violent, and living among the dead. And as Luke relates the story, he is clearly intent on painting a picture of utter degradation and misery. Here is a man who has had anything resembling a normal life taken from him. But as I'm reading through Luke's gospel... And I come to accounts such as this. The question I am forced to ask is, why? Why does Luke choose to include this account 
in his gospel. What am I, what are we supposed to take away from this? And I think this is what Luke wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that this is a picture of what sin does to us. What the demons had done to this man is what sin does to us. But he also wants us to understand what Jesus can do for us in delivering us from the same kind of bondage in which this man finds himself. When sin grabs hold of us, what does it do? Sin exposes us naked in our guilt. It alienates us from other people, making us lonely and alone. It makes us violent, at least in our attitudes, if not also in our speech and our behavior. Spiritually speaking, we walk among the dead, In this way, the man living among the tombs shows us the wretchedness of being outside of Christ. Now, we're not left to wonder at the cause of the wretchedness. He came to be in this condition because, Luke tells us very clearly, he was possessed by many demons. And this was obvious from the very words that he spoke. Seeing Jesus... He cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. He had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Jesus had. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilderness. This is not the result of one demon, but many. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Now, we're not given an exact number of how many demons happened to be there, but since they were... There were up to 6,000 soldiers in a Roman legion. Well, we have some idea. It wasn't just a few. Many, many, many. Mark also tells us that there were about 2,000 pigs. Although if multiple demons can inhabit a single man, I guess multiple demons can inhabit a single pig as well, So we don't know how many, but we're talking thousands of demons in this one man. Now, let's take a moment for a crash course on demonology. Demons are fallen angels. They were created to serve and bring glory to God, but they followed Satan in his rebellion and became enemies of both God and man. Now, unfortunately, there have been many misconceptions which have arisen concerning demons and their activities. Like miracles, demonic activity does not seem to occur with the same level of regularity or the same intensity all the time. You can read huge portions of Scripture 
covering many hundreds of years and find virtually nothing said about either miracles or demons. What we do find, most certainly, is that there was a great increase in demonic activity during the time of Christ's earthly ministry. And this is one example of that. And it makes perfect sense, given what we see in Revelation chapter 12, in which the dragon, Satan obviously, is seeking to devour the child, Jesus. And in his fury... At the incarnation, Satan turned all of his energies against the Savior and his minions, the demons, were manifesting their presence and their malevolent anger toward many of those in Israel. And this is what we're seeing here. C.S. Lewis famously reminded us that there are two errors that people commonly make about demons. One is to minimize them or even deny their existence altogether. And the other error is nearly as dangerous, to so exaggerate their importance that you see them behind every bush. Every sin, every spiritual difficulty is attributed to the direct agency of demons. That's not the case either. When people think that way, they, they stop taking responsibility for their own actions. They end up essentially saying, whether they verbalize it exactly this way or not, the devil made me do it. Yeah. And they forget about the depravity of their own sinful hearts. The Bible provides a balanced view of demonic activity. To begin with, it recognizes the reality of spiritual oppression. There are evil spirits in the world, and they prey upon human weakness. Satan himself roams about, seeking whom he may devour. For reasons unknown to them, they are more active at certain times and in certain places. But despite what some wish to say, not every sin, not every psychological disorder is the work of a demon. I have often said when it comes to my sin, I don't need a lot of help. My flesh does a fine job leading me into temptation. But demons exploit spiritual weakness to gain control over certain individuals, warping their personalities, twisting their actions to evil purpose, and that is what we are seeing here. What we are seeing here, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, is a picture of demonic possession. So, something happens in your life, and you start to wonder, well, is there a demon behind this? You need to come back to a passage like this and ask yourself some questions. Do you suddenly have great supernatural strength? You break in any chains and shackles recently? You have some uncontrollable urge to go and live in the cemetery? People want to label any unpleasant thing as demonically inspired. 
what we find when we look at scripture is that when demonic activity manifests itself, it's pretty obvious. And it has these characteristics. The demons inside this man were trying to dominate and distort and destroy a precious person made in the image of God. And they had brought him to this condition. Evil spirits are nothing to trifle with. Given the chance, they are controlling and abusive and violent. This is what demons always do. They seek to destroy. They seek to oppose that which ought to glorify God. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers and principalities, against this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where our battle is. There is an unseen world. There is a cosmic struggle going on. And the man with the legion of demons gives us a shocking picture of that battle. This is what sin does to us all. Even if our situation seems less extreme, Scripture tells us that the sinful mind is hostile toward God. You hear the hostility in the words of the demons? The Bible describes us as dead in our trespasses and sins. You see this man existing in a place of death. Scripture says that apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we are alienated and hostile in mind. And we see him here among the tombs, no family, no friends, utterly isolated, alienated, alone. And worst of all, the Bible says we cannot save ourselves. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of God. Do you see this utter helplessness? He is in utter bondage, and if he is to find freedom from that which enslaves him, it's going to have to come from outside. It's not coming from in here. Don't listen to the lie that the world wants to tell you. The answer to all your problems is within you. It is not. What is within you has caused all your problems. You need Jesus. If ever a man seemed to be beyond any hope of salvation, it was this man. Yet he is about to have an encounter with Jesus Christ that would change his life. This is the other side of the biblical balance. The evil power of demons has to be recognized and respected, but it does not have to be feared. Fallen angels cannot triumph over the power of Jesus Christ. They are his subjects. The demons themselves know this all too well. They knew who Jesus was when he came and spoke to them. According to James, the demons believe that God is. And the result of that is that they shudder. In other words, they know that there is an omnipotent God to whom they are accountable. And for that reason, as we're seeing here, they live in constant terror of what awaits them. 
And this explains their reaction to Jesus. The legion of demons knew exactly who he was. He was the son of the most high God. Now, how did they know? They had known the second person of the Trinity since they were created because he created them. Jesus is the God against whom they have rebelled. They knew that he was the Son of God incarnate, and they were terrified. They understand Jesus' authority. And we can smell their fear in the way that they plead with Jesus. First, they beg him not to torment them. I beg you, verse 28, do not torment me. And then in verse 31, they were imploring him not to command them to go into the abyss. They know that Jesus will defeat them. They know that they will be cast into a terrible place of everlasting torment. And so they tremble with fear. Some people may not believe in hell. The demons do. We should believe too and repent before it's too late. Because in the end, if you've read the end of the book, you know this. Those who reject the grace of God through Jesus Christ will end up inhabiting the same place as the demons. It is too late for them. There is no salvation for these angels who have rebelled against God. There is no redemption for them. Even the good angels don't really understand redemption. They are things into which the angels long to look. But they've never been redeemed themselves, so they don't really get it. Redemption is not for angels. Redemption is for men. Redemption is for those who, by the work of the Spirit of God, come to understand that they are alienated from God, but that that alienation can be remedied through Jesus Christ. So Jesus didn't send these demons into the abyss. It was not yet time. Instead, he did something that many people find rather strange. People like our friend Bertrand. There was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit, permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. People like Bertrand Russell are offended by this. I'm guessing Peter would have a thing or two to say as well. They believed that it was a form of cruel and unusual punishment, at least for the pigs, if not for the demons. How do we respond to that accusation? Well, we might defend Jesus by pointing out that he was not the one who destroyed the pigs. The demons did. Of course, Jesus gave them permission, as the Bible says, but it was still the demons who drove them off the cliff. 
In pointing out that truth, we could get into all kinds of deep philosophical and theological discussions about the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I suppose one could do that. Or one could defend Jesus by arguing that this was better than the alternative, which was to turn the demons loose, to torment the general population. We could say that the pigs were ceremonially unclean, and therefore the pigs were a proper receptacle for the demons. We could point out that hog farming was against the law of Moses, It was not even lawful. It was not kosher to raise bacon, even if they were only selling it to Gentiles. So depending on who owned the pigs, this could be seen as an act of divine justice. There may be some truth in all of these arguments, and maybe there are others some would like to put forth, but in the end, here's the truth of the matter. Jesus doesn't need to be defended. And those pigs lived and died for the glory of God. And we ought not be embarrassed or ashamed to say so. Jesus cast the demons out as easily as he had commanded the sea. He is the ruler of both the natural and the supernatural realms. And in order to prove this, he permitted the demons to enter the pigs. In this way, everyone could witness what had happened in the unseen world of the spirits. Jesus had delivered this man from demons. The pigs were an essential part of demonstrating the full extent of the miracle which had taken place. Now, the way people responded to this is as important as the miracle itself. This is the second part of the account. Luke could have stopped right there. Jesus delivered the man. Demons went into the pigs. Demons caused the pigs to go off the cliff and drown. Boom. Guys healed. Wonderful. Praise God. But there's more that Luke wants us to see. And that we begin to see in verse 34. The way the people responded to this extraordinary event is where Luke is intending to take us when he begins to tell the story. As we asked when we began this morning, why? Every gospel author has to pick and choose. John tells us that if he you know, wrote down everything that Jesus had said and done, the world could not contain the books that would be necessary. So every gospel writer has to pick and choose what he is going to include in his gospel, and Luke makes a deliberate decision to include this event. And he also makes a deliberate decision not to end his description with the pigs drowning. So what does he want us to see? Well, one of the things that we see here is a clear contrast between the herdsmen and then the townspeople and this man whom Jesus had saved. 
Both of them went away and told other people what had happened, but only one did this for the glory of God. Luke begins with, with the herdsmen there in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. So you're, we're, we're not looking at something um, which took place, you know, in the course of a half an hour. This sounds like it's an all-day event. Jesus delivers this man. Everybody gets afraid. And they take off running. And they tell everybody they know. Some go back to the city, and some go back into the, out, go, go to, into the outlying regions, right? out into the country. That's got to take some time before people hear the story and come back and now find this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus teach in his right mind. It's pretty obvious that word of this event would spread. And pretty soon Jesus was surrounded by crowds of people who desired to glorify God and thank him for what he had done. Unfortunately not. That's not right. Jesus was confronted by an angry mob. The pigs were gone. People were amazed to find the possessed man now in his right mind, sitting there listening to Jesus. And Luke tells us that when they saw this, they became frightened. Rightfully so. It's not hard to understand, really, why they would be frightened. On a purely human level, what just happened was not an everyday occurrence. It's not something people are used to. Remember, they had all been afraid of this man. And now they were confronted by someone even more powerful than he was. How many people do you think they had seen who could break chains and shackles? And Jesus had just shown himself to be more powerful than that. Of course, there was something else going on as well. The pig farmers just saw their livelihood go over a cliff. They were concerned about their financial interests. Notice that they confronted Jesus after hearing how the demon-possessed man had been made well. In other words, they knew that Jesus had cast demons out of the man and into the pigs. They understood what had happened. Now the pigs are gone, and they were afraid that Jesus might just take the rest of their business away. After all, 2,000 pigs is a lot of bacon and ham. And under the law, this was a business they should not have been in in the first place. And clearly, Luke wants us to understand what their priorities were. 
They cared more about their precious pigs than they did about the priceless treasure of a life transformed by Jesus Christ. The people of the Gerasenes had wrong priorities. They were afraid of losing any more of their livelihood, but I think they probably had an even deeper fear, and that fear was of Jesus himself and of his saving power. Luke tells us that they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out. They became frightened, and ultimately they tell Jesus to leave. Well, ask him. You're not going to find somebody who casts out all these demons into some pigs and then tell him what to do, but... They made clear what their preference was. They could see what Jesus had done, and they still rejected him. They were full of fear. They were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of his power and authority. They were afraid of his ability to change someone's life in ways they couldn't even imagine, to even begin to, to understand. Perhaps most of all, they were afraid of what Jesus would change in their own lives if he stayed around much longer. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they seem to understand? They know they're sinners. They believe that Jesus could forgive them, but they don't want him to. I've spoken to people who said, yeah, yeah, I believe everything you're saying, but I don't want to change my life. And I know that's what Jesus would demand. This event that we're looking at here is really, when you get underneath the demonic and the supernatural, it's really not so strange. It's not so different than what we experience all the time. People who refuse Jesus, knowing what he is able to offer them, and they don't want him. People who are bound in their sin and don't want to be liberated. People whose eyes have been blinded, and they like it that way. So they sent Jesus away. If they had trusted him, he could have put them in their right minds too. They clearly weren't in their right minds because they sent Jesus away. If you're in your right mind, you want to get as close to Jesus as you can be. He could have taught them everything they ever needed to know. He could have changed their lives as well. And we know this because Jesus did all this and more for the man that he saved. It's one of the most radical transformations in the gospel accounts. Jesus took a man who was naked, dangerous, alienated from every other living person, a man living among the dead, and he changed his entire life forever. Notice all the things Jesus did for this man. Luke describes him as the man from whom the demons had gone out in verse 35. So Jesus delivered him from demons. He was no longer possessed, oppressed by fallen angels, Jesus Christ is now in control of his life. And wherever Jesus takes control, there is freedom. 
there is liberty. The man was sitting at the feet of Jesus. The man who had raged about, frightening everyone who had come near to him. The man who had broken chains and shackles. The man who had widely, wildly roamed about the desert was that wild man no more. Jesus had calmed the storm of his soul, and now he was able to sit quietly and listen to the words of his Savior. No longer alone, no longer isolated, he now has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And as a result, soon he would have many other healthy relationships. This isn't something Luke dwells on, but that's certainly the implication. He was coming back into community. He would be fully clothed, and that too is significant. Previously, he went around naked without any sense of modesty or decency, and now he wears proper clothes. The orderly way in which he was behaving was a sign of the discipline that Jesus had brought into his life. Another way to say this is the man was finally thinking sensibly. Luke says he had been made well. It's a marvelous picture of what happens in salvation. We leave the sinful power of Satan and come under the control of Jesus. You understand this, right? When when we look at the spiritual condition of men and women. We cannot help but speak of men and women as being in bondage. The question is, who are you in bondage to? Who are you a slave of? The enemy of your soul or the lover of your soul? I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And in that slavery is freedom. In that slavery is liberation from all of the bondage that the enemy desires to place upon me. We enter into a wonderful new personal relationship with him and also with his people. And so in Christ... I am not alone. I've got you. Praise God. I can go into a Bible-believing church anywhere in the world and know that I am with relatives. I'm with brothers and sisters. We serve the same God. Doesn't matter what language we speak. Doesn't matter what our, our cultural mores may be. Doesn't matter what color we are, we are one in Christ. That's what Jesus, that's part of the, the, the freedom. It's part of the liberty that we have in Jesus. Now we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're able to sit still and listen to what he has to teach us. We have a whole new way of thinking about things because the word of God is transforming our minds. This is the experience of every person who trusts in Jesus Christ for their salvation and then is delivered from that bondage in which they lived. 
J.C. Ryle said, never is a man in his right mind till he is converted, or in his right place till he sits by faith at the feet of Jesus, or rightly clothed till he has put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Considering all the things that, that Jesus had done for this man, it's not surprising that he responded very differently from everyone else who was there that day. Instead of sending Jesus away, this man was ready to follow Jesus anywhere. And so we read in verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, but he sent him away. This man wanted to stay with Jesus. When he saw that Jesus was leaving, he begged him. He pleaded for permission to climb in the boat and join Jesus and the other disciples. This is what we have come to expect in Luke's gospel, that when people come to Christ, they leave everything behind to follow him. And although Jesus didn't permit the man to physically follow him, the man followed him nonetheless. God had a different plan for this man's life, as he often does. So Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house. Describe what great things God has done for you. And so he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. This man would still be following Jesus, but not in the way he expected. Rather than going somewhere across the sea, he would go back and be a witness to his own people. This is typically the first calling that we have after coming to Christ. Not going off on some exotic adventure, but just going to those that we already know and love and sharing the good news about Jesus Christ with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors. And so the story ends with this man going back and proclaiming throughout the city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now, I want you to see something here that we might miss if we read over too quickly. Pay attention. What does Jesus tell the man? Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. What great things God has done for you. But when he went home to his city, what did the man proclaim? What great things Jesus had done for him. You see, in, in proclaiming the great things that Jesus had done, this man was being obedient to Christ's command. Because what Jesus had done is what God had done. And he understood that. Somehow this man knew that Jesus had saved him, and that Jesus not only saved him with the power of God, he knew Jesus was God. Now there's a man with a dramatic testimony. Right? But you know what? If you've come to trust in Jesus Christ, then you have the same testimony. I've walked with Christ for 45 years, and I'm still amazed by what Jesus has done for me. The details are a little different. No demons involved in my testimony, as far as I know. But that night, when I was 13, in a gym, and a man pulled me out of a basketball game against my will and shared the gospel with me. I believed that night. 
And Jesus did the same thing in me that he did in this man. I was freed from bondage. I was clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Through the word of Christ, I began to have my mind renewed. And if you're in Christ, the same thing has happened to you. And if you are not in Christ, you can be. Because Jesus will do the same for you. Turn from your sin and trust him and he will save and he will make you a new creature and he will deliver you from bondage. He will free you. Trust him. He is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also said, it is the truth that will make you free. Jesus and only Jesus. Father, thank you so much. Father, you are so good to us. That goodness is seen most of all in Jesus. We thank you for the freedom that we have. We thank you that you have made us new. We thank you, Father, that one day we will see our Savior face to face. Sitting at his feet as this man did. Oh, Father, what a, what a privilege that was for that man. I cannot imagine, Father, I would do anything to sit at the feet of Jesus and to hear him teach. One day I will. One day all of us who are in Christ will because you will make it so, Father. Thank you. Continue your work of liberation, not of political systems, but of souls. Build your church, Father, until Jesus returns. In his name we ask it. Amen.